Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. We spoke to Adam Tooze in New York yesterday. He put that episode out, and then things changed overnight. We're speaking to Adam again today to get the latest on what is going on. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the only magazine willing to ask the questions that keep you awake at night and answer them too, even if it takes 10,000 words. Is it okay to have a child in the age of climate crisis? Where next for the coronavirus? Was it a hermit crab that ate Amelia Earhart? You know where to go. Talking Politics listeners get to subscribe for a world-beating rate using the URL lrb.me slash talk. They'll even send you a free copy of Sinomania, writing about China from the London Review of Books. Just go to lrb.me slash talk. So the ECB change of heart that happened overnight, and we did a little update yesterday, but we're going to talk about it in a bit more detail today, Adam. You've had a chance to sleep on it. What do you think lay behind it? I asked you yesterday whether Lagarde's original press conference was considered willful or just a blunder. Does it now look like a blunder? Oh, man, I don't think there's any doubt at all. Even at the time, I think uh, it was clear that if she was speaking, she was speaking, if you like, the kind of the repressed id of the Conservatives on the the ECB Council. And it was from the point of view of market stabilisation, a disaster. From there, there were really only uh, radical paths forward. They've chosen quite clearly this week the path of status quo, of stabilisation. What they've done basically is a gigantic ramped up bombide scheme, the sort of thing that Draghi had been operating since 2015, but with the gloves taken off, with explicit provision for them being able to modify their own rules, which limit them completely artificially to a certain percentage of the sovereign bonds of each one of the major Eurozone members. And so basically they're saying we're lifting all of those caps if necessary. We'll buy a mixture of sovereigns and corporates, whereas previously last week the emphasis had been very much on corporates. So they're really giving themselves carte blanche to do whatever it takes. One of the reasons I think they're doing this is that earlier in the week, after the ECB disaster of last week, there had been this increasingly urgent conversation about corona bonds for the eurozone as a whole. Macron had gotten back on the horse and was riding that. And the Germans just really don't want to deal with that at all. So once again, an improvised solution from the ECB emerges as the easiest fix for what, from Merkel's point of view, is a really tricky uh, domestic political problem. And so we've gone from seven expensive words last week to three words, four words. There are no limits. Whatever it takes was three words. We're on four words. There are no limits to what they need to do effectively to save the euro and the eurozone. Are there really no limits? We'll see about that. It is also, I think, the other thing that we need to add is just the severity of the disturbance in the financial markets has become more and more clear. I mean, last week it was rumblings uh, and some very bad days. But what we've seen now is a cumulative, increasingly serious credit tightening, downgrades of very substantial corporates, a huge wave of closures across the German auto industry, across the European auto industry. I mean, the full severity of the crisis is now becoming apparent. And I think that is forcing everyone's hands. The Fed too, in a less dramatic way, but incrementally is also upping the ante over what it did on Sunday. 
And Sunday was big enough, really. Some people thought from the Fed, but it's now turned out they need to be into the commercial paper market, which is the three-month borrowing by corporates. They're buying corporate bonds, most likely at some point, or creating some vehicle for them to be able to do that. You know, we're really talking about a creeping escalation of intervention across the board. And even if the ECB had not had a disaster last week, I think it would have been surprising if we hadn't seen another major initiative this week. Um, what the limit is going to be, I think at this stage, it's far too early to tell. And with, with financial markets, the crucial thing is to is to restore confidence. And, and if you do, then you really don't have to do anything. We don't have to do very much. That was the magic of Draghi's intervention in 2012 is that having said we'll do whatever it takes in fact the ECB did nothing the, the, the you know they carefully devised the OMT mechanism the outright monetary transaction stabilization system so they would probably never either have to or be able to activate it and the ECB's balance sheet actually contracted uh, in 2013 and into 2014 so this question of what in extremis the limit would be is one that you just hope you never have to test Presumably, there is a chance in this case that it will be different, given the extreme precariousness of the current situation, that it it won't be decisive in that way. And Helen, yesterday, she talked about Draghi's original ability to rescue the euro as being an exercise in part of charismatic leadership, that he, he did it through essentially corralling the political wills of the people who needed to get behind it. With this one, you say they, I mean, Lagarde made a mistake last week, and now they have corrected that mistake. But are we clear who they are here? I mean, are we clear who is providing the non-charismatic leadership? I'm afraid we aren't yet at this point. And I think the retreat from Lagarde to they is important given what happened last week. There were there were many sceptics at the moment when Lagarde was hoisted into the position of Straga's successor. I, I have to say uh, uh, and admit that I was, I was not amongst that group. I thought that in many ways that she made certainly the best of the available alternatives. Or what happened last week has severely dented people's confidence in her personal ability to handle the kind of extraordinarily high stakes communications tasks that a major central banker has to face now. And so it is possible that we will see a retreat to a more corporate, more collective, less, more anonymous, if you like, form of leadership. And the power battles that may or may not be going on within the ECB at this point are, as far as I know at this point, still quite opaque. I've been scanning as best I can the the German political discussion, the German media over the last 48 hours. And what's astonishing is just how little coverage this is getting. And that that in and of itself may be great news, because one of the big questions has always been, why is ECB policy so salient? Why is it so politicised in Germany? In France, you know, the major newspapers shrug their shoulders. Uh, in Germany, you know, the interest rate policies of the ECB are the fodder of the built tabloid. So it may, in fact, be extremely good news for Europe's ability to manage this crisis that it's getting relatively little attention in the German media at this point. But my guess is that after the public uh, arguments over Merkel's position on euro bonds, no one wanted any more of that. And it became clear that the way forward to stabilisation was by way of ECB bond buying. We talked yesterday about the different timeframes at work here, and you rightly reminded me that it is happening very, very fast. But the disease itself is still playing out differently in different places. And Germany is behind the curve in that respect. 
there are some differences emerging that may close over time, but the death rate in Germany is much lower relative to the number of people who've been tested positive. Some Italian senators have claimed the Germans are covering up the true figures. That sort of rhetoric has already started. The Germans have not gone into lockdown yet. Germany at the moment, in its experience of the disease, is nothing like Italy, Spain or France, and not even quite like the UK. Do you think that's a factor in this when you talk about the different coverage? I mean, do you have a sense inside Germany of of how urgent it feels? Yes, it's absolutely extraordinary, actually. Um, I was reading Spiegel this morning, an article from uh, yesterday or the day before yesterday referred just in passing, and it's these kind of passing comments which I think are so telling. The comment was, the Italians are already forced to engage in triage. And this was a, a, a newspaper article from two days ago. I mean, and of course, the Italians have been engaged in the most fearsome and awful form of triage uh, in, in their intensive care units for weeks. So the, the, the idea that this is dawning, as it were, on the German commentary is really quite surprising the extent to which the debate and the urgency there seems to lag behind. I mean, they are moving now towards various types of soft, if you like, shutdown, similar in many ways, you might say, to to what's happening in the United States as well. And I, I think in terms of the testing figures and the mortality numbers, no one should take these ratios too seriously because it just depends crucially on what you're selecting, you know, how many people, what sort of people they've tested, what the criteria are for testing, before we can jump to any conclusions. On the face of it, of course, and from a British vantage point, particularly the Germans look well-equipped. They've got more ventilators than the Brits and the National Health Service. If we go to a truly exponential rate of infection, then those differences will, will, will vanish um, because they too will be overwhelmed. But I think we still just have to see how rapidly this has spread to Germany and how rapidly these chain infections are working their way out. What we know from places like Korea is that a single patient right, can be responsible for infecting a thousand people. So uh, they may just have gotten lucky in the lottery of viral uh, contagion so far. Are there any parallels? We talked about some of them yesterday with the financial crisis in which Germany did stick to a different path than the rest of Europe in some ways than the rest of the world and held the line longer and indeed held the line in some respects about the forms of intervention that would be required. Do you see any parallels here? I mean, it does look increasingly like as one by one countries shut down that Germany may be the last. That's possible. And there are also safe haven type logics playing out in the financial sphere where money runs from the periphery of Europe into Germany. I think where the blowback is going to come from Germany is in the its acute dependence on the export sector. I mean, the pride of the German economy is its manufacturing export sector. And that is one area of the global economy that is going to be savagely hit by, by this recession. Already in 2019, it was Germany leading the Eurozone into recession by way of uh, industry and manufacturing and the the downward spiral in trade, which had already begun last year. We, we were seeing perhaps the green shoots of recovery early this year, and those have now, of course, been completely wiped out. So though there may be safe haven effects where Germany has a different experience as a result precisely of the run of money from the periphery into Germany, on the trade side, I would expect the Germans to be very hard hit. We didn't talk about the UK yesterday, and we'll just talk about the UK briefly today. 
the ECB's announcement overnight, the scale of it took a lot of people by surprise. It is massive. You emailed us and said, this is huge. Mm -hmm. Um, The Fed is doing something huge. Not sure the UK, not sure the Bank of England can do something so huge. And the pound has fallen fairly sharply after the ECB announcement. There may be other things going on there too. We, the United Kingdom, are outside the European Union. We were always outside the Eurozone. Do we, in this context, look a little vulnerable? Well, I don't think there's any doubt at all that the vulnerability of the UK is exposed. And it's, you know, being given a horribly concrete and material form in, you know, the the numbers of intensive care beds and ventilators that are available in the UK. I think, broadly speaking, there are as many ventilators in New York State as there are available to the entire National Health Service. So at that level, this vulnerability has taken on a really manifest uh, form. There are all these stories about the reluctance of the UK to collaborate with the EU in group procurement of ventilators and so on. I think what's going on in the currency markets is very interesting right now because the UK currency is just one of many which are plunging against the dollar. The UK currency is also falling against the euro, so it's a more broadly based fall. Um, And it points to the severity of the tensions within money markets and financial markets right now. One of the things we drew a sense of relief from last week was that there hadn't yet been a general surge into the dollar. Uh, And unfortunately, that's precisely what we are beginning to see this week. The news from Asia this morning as we woke up in the US was was extraordinary with a historic falls in the Australian currency, even the yen showing weakness against the dollar and the yen over recent years has been thought of as a safe haven currency. And so what this is pointing towards is the scale of the panic. So this is not a question of individual companies or even individual economies anymore. It's just a general desire of investors worldwide. And that means not just, you know, the famous roving cosmopolitan speculators, but just anyone who has serious amounts of money anywhere in the world would rather currently have it in cash. And the cash they would really like to have it in is dollars. And the UK is, I think, caught up within that, um, along with many of the emerging markets, but also Norway, you know, which is considering interventions right now to stabilise the Norwegian currency. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You sent me a couple of links to articles overnight about just how dramatic the switch has been in emerging markets, not just by the day, but by the hour. But are you saying that in a sense, the UK or Australia or Norway, the emerging market logic applies to us too? I mean, are we or are the emerging markets still a separate case that the vulnerability there is exponentially more acute? The vulnerability there is greater for very concrete reasons. I don't think it's any longer the case now this week uh, that we're talking about real qualitative differences, as it were, that the UK belongs in one pot and South Korea in another. What global investors are saying to themselves is there is 
a bifurcated dualistic distinction in the world economy right now. And on one side is the dollar and on the other side is the rest of the world. The impact of this, however, of this run on a country like the United Kingdom or Norway, uh, in the UK case with very deep financial markets, and in the Norwegian case with a huge sovereign wealth fund, uh, in the UK case, additionally, a central bank which is directly integrated into the Federal Reserve swap line system. The difference between them on the one hand and a Thailand or a Mexico or a Brazil on the other is radical in the sense that the ability of uh, advanced economy debtors, if necessary, to gain access on relatively better terms to dollars is much greater, in large part as a result of the fact that they're attached to the swap line system. So far, none of the major emerging markets have been added to the Fed's network in the way they were in 2008. And this is a real source of, I think, of worry now. People are making itemized lists of where the dollar funding needs might be. There are some very alarming scenarios, perhaps not immediately, but in the medium term involving, for instance, Pemex in Mexico, the semi-sovereign oil producer there, which has huge dollar-denominated debt. And you could end up in a kind of Eurozone-style doom loop with the giant oil company taking the sovereign down. There are a variety of scenarios like that. Uh, there are economies whose private banking system is effectively dollarized. They are, if you like, unacknowledged parts of the US financial system. All of these will be subject to huge stress. And one can only hope, I think, that there's some pretty nimble footwork over the next week or so. It could involve the Fed directly. It could involve uh, swap lines from the Fed. It could involve new facilities from the Fed to allow countries which have large holdings of U.S. treasuries not to sell them, but to so-called repo them. In other words, borrow cash against them. Or it could involve the mobilization of the IMF. Those are going to be political judgments. And the politics, again, is potentially, at least in the United States and elsewhere, difficult to put it mildly or toxic to put it less mildly it's not 2008 this is 2020 no absolutely the the only good news so far on that front i think is that these complicated issues of international finance have not yet as it were broken the surface of politicization in the sense this you know is what we were saying also about the eurozone with the relatively muted response in Germany to what is by any stretch a historic decision on the part of the ECB. So far, we have not had rumblings from Congress about the swap lines that the Fed uh, reactivated. Um, They were in place, so nothing new was done, but the price was lowered and the terms were made more attractive. We'll have to see whether the Trump administration is really willing to go along and whether the GOP in Congress will allow them to It has to be said that when it came to the Argentine crisis a while back, the Trump administration was relatively proactive. One gets the sense that they fancy themselves as crisis fighters. Trump himself is certainly no ideologue when it comes to fiscal policy in the sense of being a conservative. So there may be more flexibility there than we give them credit for. But of course, the issue of nationalism is paramount. It's those twin impulses, nationalism on the one hand, on the other hand, if they don't do it. I mean, the Chinese aren't going to step in in this respect, but the Chinese are stepping in in other respects. And there's also the fact that, so in the Italian case, the disease came first, the financial crisis followed soon after. In the case of some of the countries you're talking about, Brazil and so on, we don't know the extent to which the disease is going to take hold, but the financial crisis is already here. The sequence is the other way around. And there are nightmare scenarios where the economy tanks just as the disease takes off. 
Absolutely. And we can't assume, after all, that, you know, all emerging markets, and it even seems inappropriate now to use that phrase, are going to display the extraordinary public health competence that South Korea and Taiwan, which, believe it or not, still do belong in that basket from the point of view of financial analysis. We can't assume that that, that kind of technocratic competence is, is, is going to be there. I mean, the really fragile cases would be places like South Africa, I think which was under huge financial pressure even before the crisis hit, has this failing you know, power utility, ESCOM, that was dragging down the sovereign credit rating, um, has a large, poor, vulnerable population living in, you know, in highly urbanised circumstances. One could imagine real catastrophic uh, public health disasters there. The only blessing is that this disease is not affecting principally the working population. But again, we don't really know, you know, if, if, if the pandemic multiplies on a huge scale, how that pattern might shift with further mutations and so on. So um, the sequence that we're seeing right now of the relatively orderly may not be a recipe that's followed as this ripples outwards. A last question about the dollar. When we talked to you about crashed, I remember that we had a brief conversation about the German edition of your book, which I think had on its cover a kind of smashed up dollar dollar mm. bill. And as you said, that wasn't really the right cover because part of the story was not the smashing of the dollar, but its extraordinary grip, uh, which, as you say, is being shown again overnight. What would it take to break that grip? Is there anything in the current situation that you think could weaken the hold of the dollar, not just on the financial world, but on the world? I mean, it's, it's got us in its grip. I do think this is another iteration of the dollar trap that we're living through. And the prompt response of the Fed reinforces that. One of the reasons people are running into dollars is it looks like a, you know, a competently managed currency. The Fed is playing out the 2008 script. It has political freedom to do that, despite Trump's aggression against Powell. So they are playing out, I think, that script. The only wrinkle, and it's it's really just no more than a hint of, of a countervailing development is the continued interest and growth of investment in the Chinese sovereign bonds over this entire period. So there were moments, and it really is no more really than an impressionist kind of fleeting juxtaposition. But we, there was a scenario earlier this week and last week where uh, renminbi sovereign debt yields were falling as investors crushed into Chinese government bonds, driving their price up and yields down. And at the same moment, the disturbance in the Western financial markets was such that treasuries were being dumped, the prices were falling and American yields were going up. Now, this is not a persistent trend. And this is really to juxtapose two phenomena of entirely different scale. The treasury market is a trillion dollar market. The internationalized segment of the Chinese sovereign debt market is tiny by comparison. That that was even, as it were, fleetingly possible that those two data points could be juxtaposed in the way they were is a hint uh, of an alternative future. You know, some of the proposals being talked about for not so much, I don't think it's right to call it a stimulus package, but as it were, the kind of collective safety net welfare system that might underpin the US economy going forward over the next half half a year are so gigantic in their scale that it's difficult to imagine them not having an impact on the position of American sovereign debt as a unquestionably safe asset. I'm not saying there's going to be a run or that bond vigilantes are going to stalk the world, but something will change if we're talking about, you know, truly trillion dollar debt take up in a matter of months. 
So that I think is conceivable as as you know an emerging scenario. But but that begs all the questions that we're now you know very familiar with about Renminbi internationalization and so on. So on the whole, I think we're seeing, as it were, development of this tension where the grip of the dollar on financial markets is as large as ever. And who knows, we may be in a situation in which the People's Bank of China is scrambling for dollar liquidity as too, despite their huge stock of US treasuries, because the private sector in China has big dollar demands and it will not be attractive to liquidate treasuries directly. And on the other hand, an even more marked demonstration of differences in state capacity, which would suggest, as it were, a tipping point in the, the hegemonic stakes. And I take it we're as far away as ever from the euro becoming the world's safe haven, even if, say, there was a dramatic change in Germany and we did enter the world of corona bonds, the euro is still not going to take over. Well, I mean, I think, you know, last week last week was another missed opportunity for the ECB to just demonstrate the sort of hegemonic competence, even within its own domain, that one would one would expect you know, you read the stories in the newspapers of the, the super rich Asians all fleeing Europe en masse. And then, of course, when they arrive home, being quarantined for two weeks at a time, because Europe is now the out of control danger zone of this global pandemic. Those aren't the kind of stories that you would expect to be accompanying, you know, uh, that narrative we used to like of the emergence of the EU as a soft power hegemon. Um, it's not looking like this is going to be a demonstration of that. I still persist you know, in my sense that this is an opportunity for the EU to ramp up. I mean, in the wake of this crisis, surely there has to be an understanding that the EU would be really the ideal vehicle for the development of a strategic public health capacity, a stockpile of ventilators produced by Europe's sophisticated medical industrial complex and so on and so forth. You know, that that is the fantasy, of course, of the Europhiles. But right now, in this particular crisis, it, it doesn't look as though it's an opportunity that Brussels is going to have the chance to seize, right? It's not as though the national governments are really eagerly offering it this possibility. And the thing is, the crisis is just moving too fast for the usual procedures of Brussels politics to have the time that they need. Even the four words, there are no limits, do not scream the two words safe haven. Not yet, because you are fudging the issue and everyone can see it. I mean, what you're really saying there is, you know what, we couldn't face the corona bonds issue. And what we're really going to do is remove the, you know, the artificial limits we'd imposed on our purchase of Italian sovereigns and bunts. And, you know, that's as much as you can expect us to do under the circumstances. That's really the hidden message here. So while we were just recording that addendum to the addendum, it appears that the Fed has, in fact, extended the dollar swap lines to, let me see, let me see, uh, Brazil and Mexico, uh, Denmark and Sweden. Uh, let me see, uh, Norway, New Zealand, South Korea, Australia. So this is the full set, basically, of 2008. We've gone from the restricted standing swap line agreement that was put in place in 2013 back to the full set of 2008 which is good news. And it shows in a sense that the Fed is scanning this crisis in the same way, I think, as the majority of critical and intelligent opinion out here is scanning it. But it really begs questions about whether or not they aren't going to widen that group to include economies which have grown spectacularly after over the last 10 years and become much more tightly integrated. The Thailands of this world, the Indonesia's, 
India has been under very acute financial pressure in the last week or so. And we know that they were one of the people who really wanted a swap line in the first round. It'll be very interesting to see how this develops in coming days. We will be keeping in touch with Adam as this incredible, frightening story develops. We're going to be doing other things too. We're going to put out an episode with Tara Westover. Many of you will remember the one that we recorded with her about her book, Educated, the story of someone who didn't go to school and ended up with a PhD from Cambridge. And in a world where for now, lots of people are not going to school, we want to ask Tara what she thinks. We are still trying to get used to this new way of working and this new equipment. As we get better at it, we will reach out to more and more people and hear about this story from more and more places. Do please stay with us. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Fantastic. What perfect timing today. Ridiculous. It's just impossible. <laughs> if anything else happens, we're, we're done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think that I think they're like, um, you know, just maybe staying live the whole time would seem to be. <laughs>